Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Today on Sagittarian Matters, I talk funerals, trauma, and how to make it in comics with Liz Prince and Gabby Schultz. Stay tuned. Liz Prince is the author of the book Tomboy and the Ignatz award-winning comic, Will You Still Love Me If I Wet the Bed? She visited me earlier this year in Richmond, Virginia, where we strolled a graveyard for fun and talked about all our pet peeves and comics. You can find Liz and a link to her Patreon page at lizprincepower.com. Liz came to Richmond. We went to a graveyard. We went to a restaurant. We had creme brulee for the first time. Well, Nicole had creme brulee for the first time. <laughs> it's uh, not my first time at the creme brulee rodeo, okay? <laughs> uh, Liz has had a lot of creme brulees, I'm just going to tell you that much. Well, it was pretty much the only consolation prize I could have when I was in France, and the only thing I could eat at the restaurants was like the sautéed vegetables and the potatoes. Oh, yeah. Because we got dessert every night, and I was like, well, then fuck it, I'm having the creme brulee. <laughs> I could not eat the creme brulee in France. That's true. What else do we have to talk about? Do you have anything to talk about being a cartoonist? Um, you know, I have been getting a rash of emails from people lately asking for my advice how to break into comics or to, you know, how did I meet my publisher or how did I contact them or if I will look at their comics for them. And um, A lot of the times that I respond to those kinds of messages, either, you know, being like, oh, these websites are helpful or publishers have their own, uh, you know, submission guidelines. So look at those and make sure that you're following them. Uh, A lot of times these people will then not respond. Like they won't respond and say, oh, thank you for taking, you know, or oh, thanks for the advice. Yeah. And I think that's just the worst thing to ask for someone's energy and not... Yeah, and then, uh, you know, get a response and not say anything about it. That just seems yeah. so tacky to yeah. me. So what's your advice to those people? Uh, when you're asking a favor of someone and they comply with it, you know, say thanks. Yeah. That's all. Just acknowledge that they responded to you. Yeah. What is your advice to people who ask you how to break... It seems sad to me, the idea of breaking into comics. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> a lot of people want to break out of comics. <laughs> Uh, only young people want to break in. <laughs> Do they know what is what lies therein? They don't. You're like. I think they have a a very misconstrued idea of what what exactly the glamour of drawing comics is. Can you send them a, a questionnaire that's called "Is Poverty for You?" <laughs> <laughs> and just like have. Is poverty for you? How much do you really like being alone? Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I mean really, really like being alone. How much do you like working all of the time to make not as much money as someone who works part-time in a coffee shop? Yeah, or maybe any person you see on the street. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. Uh, how do you feel about wearing a wrist brace to bed? Does that sound hot? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if I could wear a neck brace to bed, I would. <laughs> Say. Yeah. You feeling that way? I've started, I've gotten actually sexier since I've been here in Richmond, Virginia. I could tell. Thank you. <laughs> I've been wearing arthritis compression gloves and a wrist brace and taking turmeric pills and rolling around on a tennis ball to rub the knots out of my back, but just like me by myself, like rubbing up and down the wall, uh, trying to work these knots out. Well, while Ponyo's the- like jumping up like, my tennis ball. <laughs> I keep looking going, no, not for you, not for throwing. Um, how do you break into comics? Just make comics. I don't know. What do you tell them? Yeah, I basically tell them that. I mean, a lot of people want to know specifically, like, oh, working with a publisher like Top Shelf, like, how did you get in touch with them? Yeah. And it really was as simple as being like, oh, this publisher publishes comics that I like and that I feel like my comics would fit in with the things that they publish. And so I went on their website and there was a submissions guideline. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, then I'll just send my book to and there's, there were two people at the time who were publishers. It was Chris Stars and Brett Warnock, and they were not in the same place. So I sent a copy of the book to each of them yeah. in their different states. Um, and apparently that helped a lot. That sped up the process because they could uh, both see it yeah. and then be like, oh, yeah, we both like this instead of, you know, like if I just sent it to Chris, he'd have to be like, oh, I think there's this thing you might like. Now I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the finding a publisher that doesn't like, you know, Marvel wouldn't want to publish Will You Still Love Me If I Wet the Bed, so... That's important, is to research the publishers. I mean, even if you do a zine and you want to get a zine distro, like, don't send your personal zine to a political zine distro. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake that I made as a young person. Well, I also think that it can make the um, recipient, like, like the publisher or distro that you're contacting feel like you're actually just contacting them because they are this thing, not because you actually know their product and want to be published by them. You're just yeah. reaching out to anyone who might yeah. possibly take a bite, yeah. which feels a little... It's know. nice to genuinely be a fan or genuinely have a respect for what they do. Yeah. 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 So you send your stuff to them. Um, I think it's really important, and I, I think I talk about this in another episode, it's really important to show that you can back it up, that you can promote yourself, that you are going to keep making comics no matter what. It can't be that you drew like three things on three post-its, and then you're like, do you guys want to publish my book? It has to be that you are already making comics, that you are photocopying yourself, and that you already are building a readership on your own. So all they have to, you're basically like, you want to sign off on this winning team that I'm already on? I'm building a team. It's awesome. I'm giving you the opportunity to put your name in my uniform. Get in. It's kind of like the, the label Kill Rockstars has in their submission guidelines. It's basically like we look very seriously at bands that are already touring, that are already putting out their own demos, that are already showing us that they're willing to work for their art. Right, of course, because especially in an industry like comics publishing where there's not a lot of money to throw around, why would you take that chance on someone who's like, well, I've never really done anything, but I had this idea. I want to do a 15-volume epic Dragon Slayer volume. Yeah. So you want to do it? And it's like, can you finish a 30-page comic, let alone a 10,000-page 15-volume saga? 
Um, the other thing is that I feel like I get a lot of kids who are still in high school or very early college mm-hmm. trying to pursue publishing. Um, or they have like these longer projects that they, you know, they want to write a graphic novel by the time they're 19 years old. Calm down, Beyonce. (laughs) And while I definitely think there's people who can do that, I feel like, uh, you are really limiting your growth as an artist. If you are confining yourself to one large product project at such a young age. Agreed. Um, I think that a lot of your growth as an artist kind of depends on just trying a lot of different things out and not being married to one outcome. Um, Yeah. I was recently helping a woman who wanted me to show her how to edit her work in Photoshop. And, uh, she has like a lot of pages of comics, but the first pages are drawn at a different size than the other ones. Was the woman named Nicole Georges? The woman was named Nicole (laughs) Georges. Sorry, Nicole. Um, and it's going to, you know, present an issue when formatting a book of them because they don't match. Yeah. And, um, you know, people have just talked about how, oh, I started drawing this way, but now I wish I could draw this. Like, I like drawing this way better, but it doesn't match the first part of my book. Yeah. What do I do? And it's like, don't tackle such a large thing before you have a style that you feel committed to. What were we talking about Zoloft this morning? I can't remember. I think you were just saying that it feels like there's not a lot, that a lot of people take mood medications or anti-anxiety medications, but it's not like a very publicly out thing. Like people aren't like, it's not like, oh, Taylor Swift takes Xanax or whatever, you know, so that it can like normalize it in that way. I think it's important to know that creative people that are actively creating work if they that some of them take mood stabilizers or anti-anxiety medication or whatever's kind of seems like almost everyone who draws at least autobiocomics probably should i do <laughs> not <laughs> i don't know what you're implying but i do not uh my anxiety keeps me warm at night <laughs> and if i'm not warm enough then my anxiety uh it's like what if we're not warm enough in an hour what if we know <laughs> what if we never enough? get warm enough <laughs> what if we never get warm enough um, we went to that place today. We have creme brulee. We went to a graveyard and walked around. Just we saw um, a giant tree that had fallen over, and some guys were cutting it up with a chainsaw. And this giant, what would you? I mean, I guess it was kind of a crane, but not really. It was like a tube. A giant. It was a tube. A giant tube. I don't know. It was weird. Some <laughs> large piece of machinery. They would like strap the these things underneath the log and then the log would be picked up and it looked like a giant vampire stake. It did look like a giant it vampire stake. like world's biggest vampire with that piece of log. That's true. That was an exciting thing. That was an exciting thing. Uh, it turns out that I would not like to get cremated nor embalmed, but buried in a very natural way. And you also um, want your funeral to be extremely sad with many, many people weeping at your grave. I throw, trying to throw themselves in while they're pouring the dirt in, you know, I'll just be like, do me too, do me too. Please. I want a lot of people to say that they always loved me, but that they just had the chance, you know, like, ah, I want a few people, a few dissenters, not men, 
not misogynists, but women who I've spurned or who just have disliked me at different times to come and just say a few words, just be like, you know, she was kind of difficult or she gave me side eye or she could really hold a grudge, you know, like I want someone to be like, rest in peace, you son of a bitch. Like I I don't want it to be whitewashed version of my life. I want everyone to be incredibly sad. I want a lot of people to be like, I wanted to tell you I always loved you. <laughs> people wailing, crying, people trying to throw their own dogs into the grave. <laughs> you go be with Nicole. <laughs> um, she's the best person that ever was. I can say that, I can say without a doubt that if there's something I will never do in my life, it is throw an animal into someone's grave. <laughs> a still living animal. Just whatever. Just be that's just so not, That's not very vegan of you, I don't think. Yeah. But people would stop them, but it would add to the drama. Because they would be okay. like, oh my god, they really got off the rails. People were crying. They were throwing dogs. <laughs> the only problem is, in my dream funeral, I would get to be there to see it. To be like, that's right. That is correct. Well, how do you know that, you know, when you die and you go to heaven or whatever, you're not just hanging out on a cloud like you get to watch your funeral. To be like, wow, they threw nine dogs in my grave. That's got to be a new record. I don't think that's how it goes. I think that it would be like, maybe my energy would be stuck in my Volvo or something and I would be flicking the lights back and forth for the new owner. But I don't know if I would actually have a form. What if you're... What if your Volvo was at the funeral? Probably should be. <laughs> if, uh, if everyone you ever loved is there. <laughs> I don't know. I think that probably my hoard will be somewhere else. Someone else will be dealing with it. Or will have gotten repossessed to pay my debts because I lived as a cartoonist. Mm. Um, that's how I want my funeral to be. Uh, and I would like a giant gravestone that said something like, you know, the best person that ever lived or like the world's tragedy. Should we? We National look treasure? Into getting plots together or something. I was thinking about that. I don't know if it was too much. <laughs> I don't know if it was too much, but we could think about getting some plots together. <laughs> that might be nice. Wait, what do you want? Your funeral to be tasteful or something? Well, I don't really oh, you know. want your body to be on display three days after you pass? <laughs> when you start, you have like bloat and you smell kind of, and you're. You know, like your blood well, is pools. I, I said that in as a facetious thing, but. You know, yeah, let's let people get comfortable with the new Liz, which is the dead Liz. <laughs> Do you want to wear your glasses in the afterlife or no? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah? Yeah. I'm pre- I think I'll probably be buried in this. Even okay. if I die when I'm like 100, I'll have them. She's wearing a bikini. <laughs> An <laughs> and American she- flag. An American flag bikini. I'm like gold lame American flag bikini. <laughs> and she's wearing like a mesh poncho over it <laughs> and a hat that says make America great again. <laughs> Rollerblades. Don't forget the rollerblades. So she wants to be buried in that. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, that is what I wear every day. <laughs> I know we were talking earlier about how my cartoon portrayal of myself is not really all that accurate, and that's one of the things that I fudge a little bit. <laughs> is that you're not always wearing a bikini? Yeah, I would. I am generally wearing a bikini and high heels when I'm recording the podcast. But, you know, I'm not going to have an open casket funeral because I will be rotting and that seems in poor taste. I would like to go directly from the refrigerator into the ground. But I would like to wear, like, a, like I have, like, a gray pilgrim dress with a white Peter Pan collar. I'd like to wear that. I'd like to look very modest and tasteful at my own funeral. Gabby Schultz, a.k.a. Kendall, is an Eisner-nominated cartoonist who grew up in Honolulu, Hawaii. 
His graphic novel Monsters won two Ignatz Awards, and his latest book, Sick, is up for an Ignatz this very weekend. It's worth noting that this is only the second interview I've ever done where I almost started crying in the middle of the interview based on what the person I was talking to said. The first was when I talked to Phoebe Gleckner. You can find that episode in our archives. In the meantime, enjoy this interview and find Gabby at gabbysplayhouse.com. Gabby Schultz, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thanks for having me. No problem. You know, it was actually harder to get you to come on the podcast than like Ian MacKay or like <laughs> Phoebe um, Gleckner or like anyone. It's actually you're maybe like the hardest, the hardest really? get, the most well, pushback. <laughs> it kind of came out of nowhere. And it's, I think it's probably for the opposite reason than, than you're assuming. It's because I am, I'm so humble that I couldn't possibly feel as if I deserve to be in such illustrious company. The, the biggest star. The biggest star of yeah. the podcast. And also, I am the biggest star <laughs> you've never heard of. I want to say this is in line. I just, I remember it. I was like, it was like, it was like, Gabby is a tough nut. Like, I remember it. I think I requested your Facebook friendship and it took like two years, two years for you to accept <laughs> my Facebook friendship. It's like, you know what? That's fine. I got plenty of time. I'm not going anywhere. I don't use Facebook, first of all. <laughs> And I don't want to give the impression that I use Facebook, second of all. So if I saw that somewhere, I would have probably ignored it on purpose for at least that six months. But otherwise, people think I'm just on there lurking, and that's even creepier than not using it. That's probably what you're doing, though, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, every day. You just don't want them to know that that's what you're doing. <laughs> so you're like, I'm just going to look at that request and just chill. Every night. It's it's a difficult life, keeping up these appearances. You're an enigma. We have a lot in common. <clears throat> we're both cartoonists. First of all, yeah. We're both Sagittarius. Second. You're, how does it feel to be a Sagittarius? I don't, know, I don't really think about it too much, except for when my birthday is really close to Christmas. But how close? Not too close, actually. My, my father's birthday is the week before, and I'm two weeks before, so he gets, he gets it worse than I do. Have you had the experience of people doubling up on presents? Yeah, yeah, I have. How do you feel but, when that happens? I, you know, like I somehow deserve it because I mean I would probably do the same thing. It's fair. I'm not so precious that I think I deserve a present for every every single holiday. <laughs> right? Hey. When's your birthday? You're are you close? December tenth. Oh, whoa! Really? Huh? Do you think that people doubling up on your presents has um, contributed to your? Wanting to be a cartoonist to make yourself seen. <laughs> to get revenge on the world. <laughs> or you're just like, you know, your whole life, you're like, see me. You know, I get my own. Everyone else gets their own holiday, which is called their birthday. What about me? <laughs> and then you're like, I'm going to make myself matter. Watch this. Yeah, well, it hasn't happened yet. I think that would oh. be a pretty lousy way to go about making myself matter. It's I'll a long. An independent cartoonist. An indie cartoonist. It's a long con. Yeah, right. I saw I saw this day coming when when there were twenty years ago when there would be a cartoon school in every state, and they'd be they'd be teaching it in college. You, they always told me they would. Well, that's weird. We are basically the same person then. Yeah, same right. Give or, give or take. Similar birthdays, both cartoonists. You were a fellow at the Center for Cartoon Studies. We were both fellows. Yeah. How did? Weird. How did you like being a fellow? It was a, it was 
it was the best experience I've ever had. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Every moment of it. No, it was great. I mean, how could you complain about it? Really, it, it was. It was. Uh, it was a good time. It was. You know, it, it's a. It's such an anomaly being around other cartoonists in a social setting, in a way that feels like a, you have some sort of camaraderie, or at least you know, in a human interaction, and it's not just on the internet. So it was. It was pleasant that way. It was the second year too, so it might have been a lot different than when. Like, I feel like they had all their. Their. their uh, their machinery well oiled by the time you came to town. I think, was the, I think each fellowship's different too. Yeah. yeah. I know but, there was some, there was some bad fellows. Well, like my kind of fellowship was like, I was very actively engaged where I was teaching a class. I taught a couple classes. I gave guest lectures. I hosted movie night. I had a punk aerobics class. Well, you're proactive and you, you're motivated and you take, you make an effort to, to be, you know, interesting and fun to people well i also <laughs> like uh like money and have a lot of energy but yeah okay well having a lot of energy is yeah that sounds valuable i don't have that a lot of energy I, so what did you do when you were there I, I not much i mean i was you know it was a different time it was back when there is i mean there weren't there wasn't a lot of things going on in town at the time so there was there was a couple of groups that hung out together a lot and you know in a couple of houses like collective sort of living situations um we shit talked a lot but you drew monsters there some of it yeah yeah you weren't just like eating funyuns in white river junction there was a lot of there was a lot of funyun eating um but yeah i mean i got some work done i mean i like i was telling you like it was it was kind of uh out of nowhere for me like i didn't consider myself a cartoonist i was literally living in a, in a truck and um i just was lucky enough to have met robin chapman at a time when they she was in charge of finding or helping find new fellows because she was the fellow last year before me the first year and and i kind of just fell into it because vanessa davis didn't want to do it <laughs> so, so it was lucky so I I think I think you know I peripherally knew about you through microcosm, through our mutual family, um, but then I read monsters. You know what? I realized it was when I was putting together calling Dr. Laura, and my production assistant at that time, Harlan, had this book at his house, and I was reading it and I couldn't put it down. Like I was just chilling, waiting for him to scan something, and I just was like, Ugh, and I like wanted to take it from his house, but I couldn't because it belonged to him. So then I bought it when I was on tour in Montreal from the Drawn and Quarterly store. Oh, wow. Because I was yeah. on tour and it was small and paperback. So I didn't feel good. oppressed by carrying it around. Yeah. And I had really just wanted to be like, what happens next? <laughs> what happens next? Yeah. Um, so Monsters is a book that just got reissued. It is about herpes. Yeah. yeah. It's about having herpes. And it appears to me to be the only book of its kind. That's an yeah, autobiographical I, book about an STD. Right. Except for, I guess, Blue Pills and um, uh, I'm sure there's another book out there, too. Yeah. I mean, who else? Why would you do that? You know, it's a terrible idea on every level, except for, I mean, you know, awareness. But I feel like maybe there's probably a better thing to draw a book about it. But at the time, it was it was just something that was bugging me a lot so it was entirely self-interest and i didn't really think through it that hard and i think if i did i probably wouldn't have bothered 
I think most people do take that extra step before committing to a 200-page book, you know? But will you will you walk me through a little bit how you started this book? Or what this book was the first long form comic, long form sequential narrative you drew. Is that true? Yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. I uh, well, like I said, I was living in a in a truck, and this is a, this um, is a theme. A theme in your life is living <laughs> in automobiles. One thing we don't have in common. One thing we don't have in common is I've never lived in an automobile. Um, I do like trailers. Nice I like really, trailers. Yeah, no, it was it was a good place to draw. It was a good a good place to to you know like um have a, like have a little private time to think through my life and and try to try to get focused enough to draw a whole book. I guess I don't know. That was the idea anyway. Probably it, it, it worked. The the trucks smell pretty bad. No, it was okay. It was you know it was I don't know. It was fine. It was it was fancy actually. It had a shower and a um like a bed and uh, storage. I could put my bike in it. So anyway, I started drawing monsters as single issues, not having any really, uh, not expecting anything out of it, just for my own amusement, which seems to be how most people start. And I think it was just through a uh, um lucky chain of events that it, it actually became ended up being a book when somebody wanted to publish it when i was maybe halfway through with it were you publishing it as many comics in the meantime yeah i was just self-publishing it mm-hmm. um that was like around the time that a lot of self, a lot of small publishers were were popping up in comics like secret acres who published it um kayama press um i don't know like breakdown or un- uncivilized I guess I don't know if breakdown counts, but they it seemed like there was all sorts of people doing that around then, so that was lucky because they were looking for I, I feel like they were still they weren't sure what they were doing and they were kind of spitballing like this this person seems like he might actually deliver a book at some point, so let's go for it because otherwise I guess until I always assumed that you would have to get a contract with fanographics or drawing quarterly and other than that you're just gonna be self publishing mm-hmm. So that was nice, I guess. Especially after I found out, I always assumed that also that Fanographics paid a whole lot of money. Oh, you know, tons! That, that, <laughs> you're just made. You're you're in the south of France. If you're even affiliated with comics, the money is just pouring in. It's actually, I was going to say, like your biggest problem becomes what to do with all the money. <laughs> you have to take a course on investing. You have to find a money manager. You know, those things come pretty much immediately the minute that you commit to cartoonists, like in your Twitter profile. It's a lot of pressure to have so many people in my employ depending on me for their well-being. Agreed. Oh. Agreed. Have you always drawn stuff that was traumatic that you were trying to get rid of? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I guess. I'm not like Mobius or somebody who is just sort of in love with it, you know, like creating a world. And like, I, I wish I was. I mean, I, I guess all cartoonists probably wish they were maybe because the drawings are so nice but i yeah for me it was more like cheap therapy i mean to be honest because you <laughs> you are working through something in slow motion like yeah you are Which, working through an experience and recasting it drawing everything that was there diving into it yeah, which you know, like as you probably know, is really is really traumatic in itself. Because I mean, drawing this, you know, 
this really miserable experience in excruciating detail over and over again, panel after panel. It's really awful. And um, it, I mean, I, but maybe it's, maybe that's part of the externalizing is just like um, opera conditioning, you know, just like give, the more you draw this person that is like that, that you've had a really awful experience with or hates your guts or, um, you know, broke your heart, then um, the more they just look like that cartoon character or the more that they are, you're both kind of a story that happens and not, uh, you know, I don't know. Like yeah. you get mad about it. How does that feel to you to be a, a cartoon that lives on the page and then just like an actual human being who's somewhere, somewhere around there? I think it's really perverse. I think it's not a, not something I would recommend to, for other people as far as being healthy psychologically, because it's, um, I mean, you shouldn't be distancing yourself from your own life in your own, you know, your own identity. Cause it just gets weird then. I mean, then you're not, I mean, but I think I don't ever feel, I feel like for me, I was already sort of a, I've always sort of felt like a, like I wasn't a complete person. Like I was, I, I mean, I'm from, I'm from a place where, I, I don't things are just at the time anyway when I was growing up there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of American culture in Hawaii there was there was like one McDonald's that they had just built like when like I, I think maybe even the same year I was born and uh like in the, 1942. Then the Wendy's, like, years later the, yeah huh? 1942 yeah yeah before the war and then Pearl Harbor happened um and so I, I feel like things were a lot simpler and in a way where it's really, I, it took me a while to even realize because I, it was so, it was just, I was just so naive. And so, um, it's just, I don't know. Things are so simple. I guess it's like kind of growing up in an extreme rural environments where you, you're just provincial, you know, like you don't, you, you see all this, you're exposed to, to culture through TV and books and which is especially weird in Hawaii because there'd be things like cartoons where there'll be, you know, like chipmunks and oak trees and, and like rabbits and like none of those things existed in Hawaii. We celebrate Christmas every year, but we don't have like my mother had to explain to me what the, what a chimney was, <laughs> like like uh, like stuff like that. But so you just you end up feeling like you're 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 living in this sort of cartoon world where it's like and, and also you see yourself through the lens of white Americans who are coming here for their tourists vacations. And, you know, you see plenty of TV about, ah, Hawaii, the garden islands of beautiful paradise where, you know, the women frolic in the sands and like you're like working three jobs. And <laughs> like it's it's a it's really I maybe I, mean, I guess I never really thought about that. But maybe that's a large part of why I, I can't take myself too seriously as a human being, because I always kind of felt like I was trapped in that weird sort of TV zone of, you know, like, like I'm not a real person according to everyone who's, who's judging me or who's, who's creating my, my world. You didn't see and yourself reflected so, back. So you didn't feel validated. Maybe, but also I'm white. So it was, you know, it was like, I or, couldn't own that either. I couldn't be like, I'm Hawaiian. This is who I am. I was just like, and that, that wasn't working either. So I, I guess for me, it was, for me, cartoons work because they're, 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 simp they're, they're simplistic and they kind of make light of even really heavy things, which is kind of necessary in my background because I'm not about to complain about being from Hawaii and being white in Hawaii. <laughs> and like that's my whole life is just kind of a joke like that. I mean, it's just not, you know, I've, life is great. 
but at the same time, I've had I've had stuff that I want to work through. Yeah. So I feel like I I don't know. Have you? Did you always keep a diary? Like, did you always? Were you always into autobio? Yeah. Because like yeah, when because I was a kid, I, I always kept a diary. Yeah, me too. And I think that's a way of sort of inventing a personality or a persona too, right? You know um, what I think it could be? Oh, another thing is that we're both. Well, you're an only child. I'm like a. Yeah. I'm like a weird combo, but um, being alone a lot, it's like I needed a witness to the crazy yeah. things that were happening and I didn't have right. a witness. So my diary or my pets were my witness. Right. I did too. Yeah. Um, totally. And but like, I, I mean, there's a, there's the first step of where you're writing that down and you know, like, are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. But then there's a second step of you. I mean, no one else is reading that stuff. Hopefully it's all you're going back and reading it. And every time you read it, you get a new sense of who you are as a person. And in a way that I think most people get from having family. Of like going to their aunt's house and then saying, you remember when you got stuck in that beehive and you're just like, you know, like, oh, no, I didn't remember that. But you have the store of knowledge about who I am. It's, you know, like not exactly what I want to hear, but it's it's more, it's like you get you, there's the truth kind of accumulates through that, or at least what you want to think is the truth. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like that. Like I'm going to cry. You're so on the nose. <laughs> I kind of feel like that. I've, I travel quite a bit for my work right now and I'll end up being in totally weird isolated spots and I realized like I get home and I'm just like need something to reflect off of because I get home and I'm like who am I what am I because I go to these random places and I'm just like buy my book like you know like I'm just Krusty the Clown right and you're then, a cartoon character and, yeah. then, and then I get home to Portland where like my my chosen family like my friends are and I'm just like oh my god please somebody just like Reflect back that I existed before this minute. Yeah. You know, like, I, like I've been in Portland for 16 years and I've done quite a bit, but then I'll go to places where I'm just like a total stranger who does this like weird kooky art thing. I'm just like this stranger who had a family trauma that she wrote about. And it's, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, could, I think your drawings are so great and I think you're good at telling a story and something that I, you know, all right. So I was looking at both of your books. I was really in, I was really in Gabby's world. Uh, looking at both of these books, um, the other one being Sick, which just came out, which we will talk about. But I was thinking, like, you're very, very, very good at being vulnerable on the page. And I I feel okay at that, you know, if I may, because I, cause that's just, I just, yeah, I know that. Um, but it's, yeah. it's a skill. It's a thing. It's a practice thing to, like, learn how to be vulnerable in the first place, to learn how to be vulnerable in public is a second, like being able to translate that and work through that feeling of like, oh, no, no, don't tell anyone this. This is shame. And being like, oh, okay, great. I feel that shame feeling and I'm just going to keep drawing anyway and just do it. Yeah, it's a little masochistic, right? I mean, I, I, I you have of, to enjoy it a little bit. I think that I grew up with so much shame that at this point I'm just like, it's not going to kill me. Yeah, It could even me get too. me something, which is connection with readers. Well, it's re it's refashioning your shame into something that you own and that you are you are almost making seem you know meaningful, or or, or I don't know like like there's always a scene I think about from that Freaks and Geeks show where um, that kid the main kid the younger brother of the main um, like the girl with the army jacket. Um, he gets locked out of the of the the locker room naked, or he has like a towel 
and he has to walk through the whole school naked and it, like he he plays it so well like you kind of you're you're kind of relating with him in a way where you're like wow yeah the, he's kind of he's kind of, like he's obviously humiliated and we can all relate with how humiliating it is but i I guarantee you that none of us in real life in those situations acted that way. Like we cried or something like we really, it, it wasn't cool at all. And I think that making shows like Freaks and Geeks and, and, and consuming that media is a way for us to, to reclaim all of that. Like there's some really messy shit that like everyone goes through and not many people talk about, you know, and that I feel like that's, that's to me is enough of a reason to write in the first place because it's 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 there and it's just it's oppressive and it's so much of like who we are i mean a tragic experience makes you who you are way more than anything good that happened to you you know in my opinion because it's just so it's it's just so sharp i mean it's it's you you have to react to it it's like you're not going to move if something is mildly sensation (laughs) but if if something is painful you're going to adjust to to deal with it so uh, yeah, uh, for me that I guess I like being I like drawing that sort of thing because it's um, I, I had a lot of I had I was the same way I had a lot of shame, a lot of like really embarrassing um, moments in my life, and I think a lot of that came from not having anyone on my side. Like I'm really jealous of of, of people who have siblings now. Like my I do have three half siblings that were um, from my um, the, my dad's marriage after after his marriage to my mother. And they, they were, they started, they were born like, um, when I was like in my teens already. So I kind of got to be like an observer and, um, and they fought constantly, you know, with each other. But at the same time, there was, I, I was just I was so jealous to watch how that would happen. And like, to me, when I fight with somebody, it's done. Like I, they're shit. I, I'm, I'm like, they're my enemy forever, which is unfair. Like your, I, your emotional training didn't tell you how to feel uncomfortable with somebody and then come back together with them. Or that that was okay. I mean, I think that's like it's you, you're taught that that's okay when you have siblings, even though it seems kind of like perverse somehow because it's like one person is is compromising there. Like, and it was always the, my younger sibling, or the, the younger brother, who was like he was constantly being like, "Well, let's do this," and it was you know he always had some good ideas. And my older uh, younger brother would always just shut him down, and he would always get his way, and they would fight, and, and the younger one would always lose. And like, cause he was always stronger, the older one. And, but like there, he learned how to deal with people through that, you know? And now he's like extremely good with people because he didn't, he was never taught that it's okay to have pride. Like you just, that's not an option for him. He just has to deal with being, you know, with dealing with someone who's stronger than him and like, will always be like it's just, dominant. It's like, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Right. At the end of the yeah, day, that, your rightness isn't going to keep you warm. Yeah, and how great is that? What like I would love to be that way, <laughs> but, but instead I'm a cartoonist. We were talking about. I will say I talked to you yesterday. We were talking about. You told me about holding a grudge against somebody for like many like a decade about a comment they made, and then I told you about this guy in Portland that I I was like, well, there's this guy in Portland, and you know, 15 years ago to this day, I heard him make fun of a really annoying girl based on her pubic hair, and you know what? I still think that guy. Is a garbage person because there were way better things to make fun of that girl about, and her pubic hair was not the thing to make fun of. Sure. And so yeah. I'll never see that guy as a feminist, even though he's carousing with you know <laughs> some kind of poor woman that's decided to put up with him. But um, but I think you thought that story was going to end with me being like, "So see, get over your grudge." But I was like, 
You yeah. just hold on tight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't feel that in general about. Pe- I mean, you know, like I. I have as an adult had to retrain myself how to be a human being and how to like not be a feral animal who is just like biting hands and interacting and reacting. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think comics has helped me with that. Comics has, you know, helped me with something that I think probably therapies helped me with that, but comics is also like double therapy. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really therapeutic to work out your own, where you stand to yourself, I guess, which is important, but it's really antisocial too. So when you're writing about yourself, other people are involved. So in monsters, how did you like, do you have composite characters? Did you mask people? Like, how did you approach writing about your relation to other people? We talked before about just keeping like the emotional truth there, no matter what. Yeah. Which is tricky too. I mean, I feel like there's, it's easy. It's I feel like you can tie it up very nicely and say, "Well, I'm telling the truth by by these lies," and and everyone knows what that means, and we all nod and say, "Like, mm, yes, the writer's craft at work." But I mean, what lies? What are you talking about? Like, I mean, like composite characters. Like, this isn't one person. This was actually three people, and yeah. or like they didn't actually say these words. But if I put down exactly what happened, it would not only be boring, but it would be really confusing, and it wouldn't be utilizing the craft. I might as well make a movie because. You know, like you've got to you've got to insert the language of comics or whatever medium you're using in in, in order to to have it make sense. So how and, how much did you do that? I, I, I well, at first I was I, I kind of I mean probably like when most people are drawing a 200 page book when they especially when they've never done it before you you progress a lot in the like the in the in the course of the book. Um, so at first I was like I'm just gonna well okay the last time I tried to do it with another traumatic experience in my life i was just like just gonna put down what happened because you know it's like it's like going to court you're just like you gotta just tell the truth to the best of your ability and then let the jury decide and you know i've since realized that's bullshit and like you really you have to it's a rhetorical battle for your life to like you, you have to pull out every trick that you can possibly find to 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 combat the like the the i don't know the dead the, that dead zone of like like nothing making sense or something. I don't know. Like, uh, but so you started by doing your deposition. Sorry. I'm getting, I'm getting a little pretentious. I'm here to um, rein in the pretense. Thank you. No problem. Uh, yeah. I, I, the first couple of issues, of, I guess the first like 20 or 30 pages, I was, I was just trying to transcribe conversations and that went pretty well. Uh, um, the first chapter is very sweet. What's that? The first chapter. Oh, of this or of the thing that, you thought about. it was sweet? Yeah, I thought the first chapter was very sweet. Well, uh, the monsters. person involved in the real life of that first chapter could not possibly disagree with you. <laughs> well, okay, at the beginning of Monsters, you are, like, living with somebody. You're in a relationship with them. You guys yeah. really like each other. And yeah. then it turns out that she has a herpes outbreak. Yeah. And then your relationship kind of goes downhill from there. Right? Yeah, and that's... That's kind of where the lies start too, because then it becomes. I think at that point, I realized that I couldn't. I couldn't spend the whole book on that because I mean, not only well for multiple reasons, some of which I don't even. I don't know if I should talk about. You don't but have to. suddenly, like that character became uh, just like a, a generic sort of like, this is how it's shitty to find out you have herpes, or like, this is a scenario in which it would be really bad, and um, 
you know, like, and maybe everyone can relate with this, even if they haven't gone through it themselves. And, and so then the lies began of like, I'm going to create this character that isn't, you know, not, none of this really happened, but I need to express this part, this facet of it. It's kind of like a, you know, a, a greatest hits of shitty things that happen about her. Well, so this book, a lot of girls get mad at you. <laughs> so this, this girl's pretty mad at you and she assumes that you gave it to her, which I don't, I don't know why you yeah. gave it to her, but she assumes you gave it to her and then you trip out. You trip out pretty hard about it. <laughs> you feel like a, just yeah. like a walking. Is- By the way, this book is also basically black hole, right? Black, <laughs> yeah. black hole well, is about an STD basically. And so is yeah, monsters, but yours is a little bit more literal. I was, I was kind of disappointed with black hole for that reason. Cause I was reading the, you know, the comics as they were coming out and I thought that's where the story was going. Like it was going to turn into like a more obvious analogy for STDs and, but it just kind of turned into this kind of noir kids in the forest hitting people with pipes. And oh like, yeah. I forgot about that. I was, yeah. It's yeah. like, so I've died. That's kind of, it was, that was kind of an inspiration for drawing this. It's just like, there's so much unexplored territory there and like, because yeah. everyone's grossed out as fuck about STDs. Of course. And yeah. Like, especially ones that cause rashes and bumps and warts and stuff, you know, like, yeah, that's horror. That's good horror. <laughs> that's real horror. Okay. So in this book, you're like a walking disease. You are just are a disease. And then you're like, that's fine. I'm going to be celibate. And then you're like, ah, and then you like get drunk and make out with somebody or maybe even do it with somebody. And then you are like, oh my God. Oh my God. And then she gets mad at you because she finds out you have herpes. Yeah. Um, and then you feel like more of a disease. <laughs> <laughs> and then you, do uh, you talk about herpes in particular? And then, um, like how did, you, I don't know. Then what happens? Well, that was, that was all by way of just trying to illustrate how the lengths that people will go to, to avoid dealing with situations like that and how, how fascinating STDs are because they, they're so good at enabling you to do that. I mean, the whole, their whole way of propagating is to go from person to person. And, and it, if they just killed you outright, then they couldn't do as much of that, you know, but like, and, or if you turn into a shambling wreck after that and we're like, I'm never having sex again, then like also probably not the best strategy for like spreading the DNA. So um, like, you kind of have to just be under the radar enough to where you can, you can keep transmitting into other people's genitals or mouths. God. Wait, I should say, I just gave like a very quick overview that made it sound like you're like the Johnny Appleseed of herpes, which is not the case. <laughs> we all are the Johnny Appleseed of herpes. That's a beautiful thing. That's, which is what I tried to express in throughout the book, and which is, it's fascinating how little um, people take that away from the book. But so then at the end, there's somebody who's like, oh, that's chill. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And then I won't, give, is- I won't give away the very end. Yeah, surprise, spoiler alert, I still have it. Surprise! Um, and to cure for herpes. I, um, that, and that's a lie too, you know, like, I, for, I guess I, 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 I really, it was really hard to write the ending. I feel like if you can write an ending to a book, you, that's a major milestone in being a good storyteller. That's, I mean, which obviously you have to do in order to be a writer. Stick the landing. Point. But some most so many people screwed up. Like I felt like Charles Burns screwed it up. I feel like uh, there's especially comics. Like it's really time consuming and really thankless, and you're not getting paid. So like you don't have a lot of motivation to like spend that extra couple of months or years to to really nail the ending. And I think a lot of people that just get 
bored and they're just like, all right, I, don't, I want to be done with this, so I'm finishing it. You know what else is hard is writing an ending that doesn't rely on cliches. Because it's easy to think of a cliche yeah. to end a story. Those exist in your yeah. head from looking at endings over and over and over again for your whole life. Um, so if you can do it yeah. by avoiding a total cliche being like, and that's then you're good in this book you get sick you get uh, you have like allergies and then (laughs) you go you're uninsured and then you just get sicker and sicker and sicker and then you basically get turned into a suicidal ghost and it's very beautiful (laughs) and watercolor the whole thing is watercolor it's hardback Um, You use a lot of devices. Something I like about your work is your use of magical realism, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, which I also enjoy employing. But, like, what about this? I don't know. I don't know. Like, what about this, about this, like, two weeks of your life made you be like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting in there. Well, it was, it was really just circumstance, too. I started... I guess I, I started drawing a weekly strip on my website at, like pretty much the week after. And um, I don't even remember now why I thought that was so important. I guess I, I guess, it, I mean, I kind of felt like I, it's sound, it's so silly. And like in retrospect, it is, it's, it's, I'm being so like dramatic about it, but uh, it was one of the, this, the times in my life where I felt like I was really going to die. And, and that it was, it was kind of, it was, it was really painful, really upsetting to learn like this was the status of my life that I was I was kind of okay with that happening. Sorry, my producer's going crazy. Come here. Tony doesn't think it's okay. Come here. She's telling she's telling me to wrap it up. She's telling you what she's saying. It's not it's not okay. It's not okay for you to die. Don't. Oh. Tanya, that's really Thanks, nice of you girl. to say. It's really nice. <laughs> she got really riled about it. Yeah. Sorry, um, you were in a lot of pain. Like, I, did, I didn't mean to make make light of your no, I well, that's the thing. I guess that's kind of what I was trying to make clear in the book too. Is that it simultaneously? It's kind. Of, it's the same thing with monsters. Like it's like the, it's the thing that people should be complaining about the least. But at the same time, there's you know there's some there's like an ex- disproportionate amount of of suffering over something that it doesn't matter. And so that's what seemed like it was you know that's why it seemed important to write about. I mean, I've gotten tons of email from people who were like going through the same thing with with monsters, with herpes. And they're like, I want to kill myself. I'll never, no one will ever love me again. Like all this stuff. And your book really spoke to me and blah, blah, blah. Which is, you know, that's kind of, that's the reason I drew it. You know, like I, I, cause I know I didn't want to, I shouldn't have had to go through all that. I went through like five, seven years of just, misery because i was too dumb to know what herpes was like how how is that possible i was like 30 years old when i got when found out about it i know people don't really ever happen people don't talk about people don't talk about sex things that much yeah that's kind of the conclusion i came to after doing all the research and drawing this book is that the main problem is that we're afraid of talking about sex culturally and personally and and we're really kind of immature about doing it when we do because we're just so unused to it, and there's so much tech around it. You know what? I, I kind of think that you can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm gonna make a big generalization here. <laughs> I think that straight people are a lot more. It's a lot harder for them to talk about sex because. Oh yeah. And this is me just like barfing out something I heard Dan Savage say that made sense to me, but it's like 
with gay people, you have to go through this process of coming out. And by coming yeah. out, just by saying, like, I love this person, it makes you already a sexual deviant. And so yeah. talking about any other things, any other sex things, like, you may as well, because you're already being classified as a fucking deviant, even right. if you're, like, having the most, like, wholesome relationship with someone right. of the well, same you, sex. Which... So you may, like, so you just kind of, you're like, okay, fine. What are you into? And they're just like, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You have to articulate the terms of your sexual desire and your like, which is so deep a part of who you are. Yeah. I mean, which is great because then you're, you're, you own it, you know, like, and I think most straight people don't ever go through that because they don't have to because they, they live in a world in which they're the default. And so like, you don't have to deal with it if you don't want to. And I think with straight people, there's like more assumptions. Like it just assumed that this is going to happen and A and B equals C and this is what's going to happen. Right. And you have to kind of go out of your way to be like, what about B.5 or D or whatever? Yeah, which is terrifying because people are going to freak out. You're going to upset somebody at some point. And like, you know, like I don't I don't even talk to my parents about my comics. You know, like I I, I can't imagine having like, you know, like I wouldn't talk to them about anything. But I mean, so if I could, I think most of us feel like if we can avoid it, we painful situations or difficult situations, we do. But you can't do that. Like, eventually, you can't just keep saying that this person is your roommate, you know? It's like you've been married for 10 years. Like, just just tell the parents that you're your, married. Your room, you're like, I'm really... I remember before I came out to my mom, I would get, like, really upset that my roommate moved out. She's like, you guys must have been <laughs> such good friends. And I'd be like, I don't know, Mom, my roommate moved out. I just really... <laughs> <laughs> She's like, well, you know girls. Jeez, they're so catty. You guys will make so up, I'm good. sure. <laughs> Oh, wait, okay, I'm going to ask you a question I ask everybody on the podcast. I think your answer is going to be pretty optimistic. The question is, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out how it came to be, and then I'm going to ask you the question. Okay. This guy wanted to be my roommate. He had just dated two cartoonist women. He was a little bit low. He was feeling low. He was a depressed moment in his life. I was showing him around. I was actually showing him the chicken coop. And he was like, Nicole, I can't do it anymore. And I was like, do what? And he was like, I can't date another cartoonist. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what that means. I just realized I was like, I have no context for what that means because as a cartoonist living in a cartoonist body, I have zero perspective on what the fuck he was talking about. So since then I've asked everyone on the podcast, what do you think it is like to date a cartoonist? <laughs> Either from your experience or from what you have observed or feedback you've received from people that you've dated. <laughs> I like to say that it, it's it's um, extremely uh, underwhelming, but I think most people expect cartoonists to be terrible partners. Really? Right? What do you mean underwhelming? I I would like artists dating an artist should at least be exciting or I don't know wacky somehow. But cartoonists are just like I mean I I feel like I'm constantly surprised at like I keep needing to explain that like. No, I still need to be alone. Like, I, like I, but you drew yesterday. Like, why can't we do something today? Like, uh, it doesn't really work that way ever, actually. I'm a, I will always not be fun. And I mean, and then, oh, no, we can go do stuff, but I'll just be complaining about how I'm not, I'm falling behind or like I, I shouldn't be doing this. It's terrible. No one should date a cartoonist. I mean, present company excluded, naturally. Thank you. Thank you. I... I kind of the summary that I that I have come to over my research is that it's dating an impoverished workaholic. <laughs> yeah, which is such a 
terrible combo. Like you should just you should be allowed to be one or the other. Like if you're working too hard, you should be rich. You know, like like a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're impoverished, you should have a lot of free time. Yeah, you should enjoy it. (laughs) Cartoonists don't enjoy anything. Will you please? Will you please tell me? Say the thing that you told me um, that what I was going to tweet. Uh, I don't remember. uh, Now I only remember your version. Or oh, that's good. That's good. I'm rewriting history. (laughs) Leave me alone, and I'll take your ass to Red Lobster or something. (laughs) If you leave me alone, I'll take your ass to Red Lobster. Mine was, if you give me mental space, I'll take your ass to Red Lobster. (laughs) That's kind of true. I I asked Aaron Rennier this question, and he was like, "It's awful because it's like." You can't go on vacation because there's always a deadline. Like you're, there's yeah. always a deadline. Like there's no fun. But I, but we still like it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think anyone likes it. Who likes it? Other cartoonists, and you know that's it. Have you ever dated somebody who wasn't a cartoonist that was like, "This is a life for me"? Who was a cartoon? Who was? I've never dated a cartoonist. That's... Oh wow! Really? Never? No. How would I? I don't even know how to do that. Um. <laughs> Liz Prince was like, what? Um, <laughs> no, I generally, I like to date other artists, but yeah. I find the ones that are most accessible to me are musicians because you can see them. You could see, <laughs> you know, like you could see, like a cartoonist you don't see anywhere. Right. They're underground. They're not performing. But they're, I mean, that's good in a way because that means they're they're so honest and forthright. You know, like they're not, they're not putting on a show. I feel like with musicians, it's it all it's it's kind of the too much of the other direction where I always feel like they're performing. I don't feel like they're performing, but I feel like their egos are more fragile or fragile in a different way than our own because we're used to getting almost zero um, like validation or respect well, or like, attention or like that like that immediate kind of I don't know I'm missing the word that's like a super simple word but like when a musician performs. There's like immediate gratification of the audience yeah. being like, you're good, you're good, yeah. do it again, you're good. Yeah. And us, you know, people reading comics is a very solitary thing. So you work for years, put out a book, you fucking watercolor every fucking page of a book, Twice. and then you put I it out there. You redrew the entire thing. You yeah. redrew the entire thing because you published it online and then you redid it in watercolor for print. Yeah. yeah. And then you worked on this for years and years, and I could just enjoy this by myself in my house and never tell you. Yeah. And most people will enjoy it by themselves in their house and never tell you. And so you don't have that cycle of validation necessarily. Right. Yeah. Well, like I said, well, also you don't bomb. Like, you don't, if people don't like it, they just don't tell you either. So that's maybe that's why people become cartoonists or musicians. You know, it's our egos are definitely more fragile in that way, I think. At least I'm, mine is. I mean, I know I could definitely bomb. And it, you know what the thing that sucks about being a cartoonist is you could work on a project for like five years and make it super beautiful, but the story could be baloney. Yeah. And, and how many you, times have you seen that happen? Too? I've seen books that are so beautiful and then you read them and you're like, ah, yeah, all right. yeah, that is the fear. And that is a, I'm, so like with calling Dr. Laura, I finished the, this is a horror story I want to tell you off air, but I finished the whole book. Something went awry and we had to find, and we had to leave our publisher and the book was homeless. And I'd worked on it for like two and a half years at this point. And my agent was like, okay, we're going to try and sell it again. But you know what? Like, it's possible that no one's going to want to buy it. So yeah. if no one wants to buy it, we'll just put it in a drawer and work on something else. Yeah. 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 It's easy. 
But I, I was like, okay. Cause like by that point I was like, I've worked on this thing for so long. Like I'm done. I was like, fine. Okay. Like that's my own weird cognitive <laughs> dissidence where I'm like, let's just pretend like it never existed. <laughs> let's just like get a broom, broom this book out of the way and work on a book that feels more fresh. Yeah. But I mean, okay. That's kind of, that's, that's just the reality of creating, making an effort in anything. Right. I mean, there's so many stories of people like books that never got printed because there was some kind of contractual dispute movies that sit in some vault somewhere forever because some studio is just doesn't want it to come out for some sort of awful business reason that has nothing to do with the movie like that stuff seems heartbreaking like i mean it's i think that's that's just universal because because uh, you know life is like that right yeah. I, but I, th- I think the only thing I can compare it to is making a movie because that's so time consuming and labor intensive well that- this is the thing i want to tell you is i drew the book I drew the whole book. I inked the whole book. The book was finished. And then the publisher I was at at the time was like, they weren't a comics publisher. They were like a political literary press. And they were like, oh, we love the book so much. We just want you to redraw it at a different dimension. Nice. Yeah. They were like, we didn't we didn't tell you this, but we wanted it to be the dimension of Fun Home. So it'll sit on the shelf just like Fun Home. But my book was like a big book. So they gave me my galleys and it was like, the drawings were this big and there were huge margins on the top and bottom, like American born Chinese. Oh my God. And you see, you've seen how it's like, I have it right here. It's like very, yeah, yeah, very, very detailed. And so yeah. like this kind of page that is so fucking detailed was like the size of a crumb. So you couldn't yeah. read anything. And I just cried and cried and <laughs> cried. And I was like, Ugh. and then they're like, we love the book. We just want you to redraw the whole book. And I was like, that's like remaking a documentary. I was like, what, what are you talking about? That's not yeah. real. That's not a thing but, that people do. And, and but, but people have done that is the really awful thing. Like that people make whole movies over again, like three times. Like what? Just what? Reading about some movie they made, remade something like three or four times, like Apocalypse Now or something where they just, um, they lost the footage. God, it was like a Tarkov. No, it was... Uh, not Solaris. Maybe it was Solaris. Some movie, some huge big deal movie. Oh, uh, Stalker. And the one that they they all died from industrial toxins because they spent so much time in this like industrial toxin area filming this movie over and over again because they like destroyed the film at some point and then the government had taken the this the footage at some point because it was somehow scandalous. No. And so Tarkovsky's just like, well, uh Let's just do it again. That's crazy. That I don't know. Is... I would, but what? At that point, you like you can't go back. You can't just be you give up because you you must know it's worth doing at that point. You know, and yeah. and you got it paid, so you just got got to do it again. I mean, I was lucky. I found another publisher, and the publisher was just like, "This is fine," but I have all these edits for you. So I had to, I did like a year and a half of edits. Uh... I like added fifty pages. The whole thing was totally inked, so every typo, every plot inconsistency, every everything I had to go through and physically do, um, which is that's like a, my cartoonist like nightmare story, like around the campfire. I have like the flashlight <laughs> under my chin. I'm like, Aah! Um, and I didn't know Photoshop. <laughs> and I didn't know Photoshop, but it made it a better book. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, at the end of the day, the if, that it if it so would have if it would have gotten published the way that it was when I first turned it in, I would have been really disappointed because nothing would have happened with it because it wasn't that good yeah and then i had somebody who understood story 
take a crack at it and dig deeper into things that I was like talking over. Like it, the original ending was a joke. The original ending was literally me coming out to my mom, but my mom was played by my wiener dog with my friend doing the voiceover, recreating oh, no. what happened with my mom. <laughs> that wouldn't have yeah. been that great. I gotta say. Yeah, I, it's scary to me how every time I have to draw something over again, I'm just, it's so miserable. And you're just like, oh, but it was perfect this time. And then it's always better second or third time you do it. And, and then you start going down that slippery slope of like, well, maybe I should draw everything over again. But then at some point with comics anyway, you gotta be like, you can't get all Phil Spector about it. You have to be like, I'm gonna die soon and I wanna draw another book before I die. Or my arm is not gonna work. Like, you know, like we're probably both going through that of like how many more pages does my arm have in me? I'm just like, I gotta walk away. Yeah, you just gotta cut your losses at some point. You could you're never gonna make a world size map. You could spend I could spend probably an infinite amount of time on one comics page. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean we offered, right? We were going over the Photoshop levels today. And Asher, my production assistant, kept being like, this or this, this or this. And there would be something uh, that I had agreed to yesterday, but, like, he showed me something that looked even better. He's like, yeah. or this or this. or And I was like, it's, let's just, this fine. Uh, I don't know. That's, uh, yeah, that's like, terrible. That's the worst way to do it, too, because you're, I, and I also, that makes me extra insecure about it, whether something is good. Because I bet that's at that point, I think if I had real talent, I would be like, it's this. I would be like Stanley Kubrick, just like, this is the take. Like, you know, like you would just know because you're so fucking good. No. And like, <laughs> well, I, I, I feel I, like that's what makes great art, artists, is great egos. Well, you know what I think makes great art is not being precious with your work and just fucking getting it out there. So like that yeah. thing you were talking about, like, I'm going to die soon. I want to make more books. I just have to walk away. It's, it is what it is. Yeah. It's going to be fine. It's probably going to be fine. You know, it's better than nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It's always better than nothing. There's nothing worse than a comic that's sitting in your drawer unfinished on your funeral. Well, yeah, it's just, I mean, like, somebody was making a movie, and I was talking to them about, I was like, it's not going to fucking Sundance, you know? Like, you can't be precious about this. That's get, Your perfectionism is getting in the way of your productivity. And, yeah. Like, that's the one thing I have going, the one thing I have going for me is that I'm not a, perf- I, like, know when to drop the f- perfectionism and just be like, it's fine. Who cares? It's, it Do you ask other, other podcast people or guests about that, too? What? Like, I would love to know what, like, Michelle T felt about that. Like, does she just cut and run or does she like no i make sure it's absolutely perfect before anyone sees it she i don't know i could ask her next time i talk to her i think we have we've talked more about the idea of like the the business of art and the idea of like you're making art because you're an artist you're not making art because you want to win the lottery it's just a practice and you want to like claim your place in the long legacy of artists and like join that world but not that you're like there to be famous or you're not there to like make a bunch of money we talk more yeah. about stuff like that, but less about, like, very specific OCD kind of writing things. Because I think about it as being so different from comics. Yeah, I guess it is. You have a word processor. Jeez. I know. I wish that I... But I do wish I had, like, a Raymond Carver kind of editor to just hack the shit out of my work. Gabby, we have to wrap this up. Yeah. I've taken up so much of your time. I know... It's been a pleasure. I know that you're very busy. Um... <laughs> You're making a poster of somebody's skin melting off of them. <laughs> My hope is that this will come out the Friday before SPX. And so people can vote for your book 
sick because it is up for an Ignatz Award. Yeah, yeah. No, Lisa Hannibal is, is also up for the same category, and she deserves it. I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Please You're welcome. So I'm holding this up to the screen for people that aren't going to see it. So people... <laughs> So people can vote for your book um, if they so choose. You will be there. They could have you probably draw on their book. Yeah, 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 yeah. Usual. Secret Acres Table. Secret Acres Table. I think for a while I thought you were that guy from Secret Acres. Yeah, I think a lot of people do. Like I was like, from I would be like, oh, that's that's Gabby Schultz, that guy. But then it's like you guys are like, you know, like if I saw you had my glasses on, you're like 400 feet away. I might be like, that's the same person. <laughs> But if I had my glasses, I mean, my eyesight's pretty bad. But if I had my glasses on, I'd be like, oh, that's not the same person. Well, yeah, we are, in fact, not the same person. But I did think that for, like, a couple years. I was like, that, that must be oh, wow. that must be who that guy is. Wait, I have one last thing to ask you, which I didn't ask you. Your uh -huh. fucking shoulder fell apart. Yeah, yeah, getting old. You were drawing all the time. Yeah. And then your shoulder stopped working, so you couldn't draw at all. Yeah, like, it hurt to touch the page with my hand. I mean, that's, I feel like most people are going through that with their wrists. Like, you've got something like that, right? Yeah, but it, it comes and goes, you know. But I do a lot of stuff now that I didn't do with the other book. So oh, really? after the other, after calling Dr. Laura, I already told you this, but I'm telling the podcast readership. After calling Dr. Laura, I finished the book and my wrist, like, collapsed. So I couldn't turn a key in a door. I couldn't, like, yeah. cut a bagel. I couldn't do anything with my hand or wrist. Um, and so I had, so I went, I tried to get acupuncture. It was too much. I couldn't deal. I don't like oh, really? it. Everyone, like everyone tries to tell me the needles are small, but I have a legitimate needle oh. phobia. So it doesn't fucking matter. The needles are small. I got, <laughs> okay. I got acupuncture at a community clinic. Uh, the guy was a fan, which made me uncomfortable because he's like, oh. oh, I've read your autobiographical comics. Like I know all about your life. And I was like, <laughs> cool. And then like, yeah. I just, no, got, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like not the most comforting thing for someone to be like, I, I feel like I know you and we've never met. And you're like, oh, I feel so at ease. Um, and then I got overheated and I had, and I wanted to barf. So I had to like have oh, him take the needles right. out and go lay on the bathroom floor. So acupuncture oh. was not for me, but I did get a wrist brace. I have slept with a wrist brace ever since. I wrap my wrist a lot, which you, which looks really dramatic, but it's very necessary. Um, it does. I, use, I use an ice pack. I drink or eat turmeric every day. Uh, really? Yeah. Anti-inflammatory? Yeah, and I'm on an anti-inflammatory diet. Like, I huh. really go out of my way to eat anti-inflammatory foods. But all those things have Is led that... to me feeling marginally better for this book, and thus far, I can still look at me holding a pen. Oh yeah, still in the game. Yeah. Good. I I don't know. I at first I thought it was just me getting old, but I I maybe it's confirmation bias, but I feel like every single cartoonist I know has an arm that barely works anymore. And that and but then you look at like Roy Crane or like like all these like old cartoonists um, that were just cranking out pages. None of them seem to have had any health problems. Like Wally Woods sitting there at his table chugging you know, meth coffee. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's another thing, though. I mean, that's that was I mean, we should be so lucky to be that productive and then blow our brains out at the end of a long, industrious career. Do you know um, I did a Twitter poll of how many cartoonists had been suicidal and 70 percent said yes. Just so you know. Well, it is cool to be suicidal now. So take that. And Is it cool? Oh. Don't don't do it, listeners. Don't do it. Um, it's yeah, it's. 
It's, it's a, if, 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 if only for your own codependent feelings about not wanting to cause other people harm by stressing them out or making them sad, you know, or for the fact that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You're like, yeah, yeah, it's true. And, and it's, it's just really, it's not like we're not going to die if we don't do it. We're going <laughs> to die too anyway. Don't worry, you get that. Well, also, whenever, <laughs> if I ever think about it, I think about how much I want to be at my own funeral. To like see who shows up and see what they say, and like, <laughs> laugh that, at the stories that they tell about me. <laughs> some of the Caesars did that. They actually staged their own funerals, so they and then forced everyone they knew to to attend and to give them long speeches <laughs> about how great they were. And it seemed therapeutic. It, it was nice. But I feel like when I think about wanting to be at that party so bad, I'm like, I guess I don't want to actually be dead in that scenario. Yeah, you can't you can't enjoy it, I guess. But I don't know. Not really. I I'm I'm just glad your your hands work, and I I I kind of went through a similar process of like, oh, now I got to be healthy, and that's boring, and probably resisted it for a while. And but now I'm like I'm actually the whole time we've been talking, I've been I've been rubbing my neck in a weird way, and I'm sorry. It's, I know I can see. Yeah, it's because I I I, I there I I got that book about trigger points. Trigger point therapy, which seems to be sort of related to acupuncture, which I've never done, but maybe it would help. And um, it was kind of a, it was kind of exciting because it, it's, it was really simple solution to a complex, hard, difficult problem. Um, it seems to apparently the only problem is there's these little knots of tension, which are constricting blood flow through your muscles and or in your tendons. And if you just press those a little bit, everything goes away. Did you send me that book? I, it's in the mail. It is. That's so exciting. Yeah, yeah. and okay, it looks like total uh, snake oil. Now right? I want to like do it while we're talking. What? It looks like snake oil. Yeah, it, it looks it looks like quackery. It's it's kind of when and the first the the preface is is don't read the preface. Just skip straight to the finding that your body part that is hurting, and then read it, and then okay. just like all they do is show you where to press, and then you press it, and they tell you. They tell you weird descriptions about what it should feel like. Mine was it said it, it, there, it is a, a spooky pain, <laughs> and, you were and like, I was like, "Yeah, that's just, that, that's what it feels like." And okay. then I kept pressing it, and then my arm got better. This is incredible. Thank you. So trigger points. Do you have any advice for young cartoonists? Uh, don't be be healthy, I guess. If you want to, but okay, no, that's useless information because no one who's young ever thinks they're gonna be old because they don't know. So. I don't know. I think I, I don't have any really useful advice because I, I want to tell people like, just go for broke. Don't don't be afraid to humiliate yourself. Don't try to be industry. You know, like I feel like there's so much emphasis these days now that cartooning is actually like the, the carrots dangling a little bit more than it was. And when I and maybe you were starting drawing comics where it was just like I'm out in the wilderness somewhere, like scrawling on a piece of bark, like that no one is ever going to care about this. And that was there was something liberating about that. That was kind of the point. But now I feel like a lot of people are like right out of the gate. They're like, first of all, I need to go to college to learn how to draw comics. And then they're like, I need, I got to find a business plan. And I, there's, I mean, that's great. I've actually seen a lot of people, you know, have some success with that. But I, I feel like it's kind of missing the, the, the burying the lead of like actually being a good artist sometimes. Like how about Which, you work on your craft and get good at your craft and then. Yeah. Which I feel like if you're really doing that, there is a significant amount of despair. Like you need to hit a wall at some point and be like, this is harder than I thought. And I don't want to do this anymore. And 
And also I'm finding things out about myself and what I think about the world that are, that are kind of ugly and like, I'm dumber than I thought. And I, you know, like, I think that's, you got to hit that point to, to actually do anything of value. Um, you got to hit that point. Right. I and mean, that's, that's maybe I'm, maybe it's because I draw really depressing stuff. I don't know. You do draw depressing stuff. Um, yeah. but that's your vibe. What's that's that? A, that's your, but that's your niche. That's my brand. <laughs> that's yeah. Your, that's your brand. Yeah. <laughs> Business I, is good. I have to say that I, I, I've been trying to get off the phone for so long. And I'm just, you won't let me get off the phone. I'm just trying <laughs> so hard, but I, um, this book is like a little bit depressing or I feel like it is than my next book. And I was like, Oh, I was like a little self-conscious about it being depressing. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just taking my seat next to every male cartoonist that's ever existed. Because, you know, and then I thought about, like, Dan Klaus and Chris. Where, like, everyone basically has a gun wedged in their fucking mouth, drawing, like, oh, you know, like. Women, help comics. Women didn't like me in my early years, and I'm going to take it into my 50s. Like, whatever thing. And I was like, great. I guess that I'm just, like, I'm, I'm trying to join the long lineage of depressive cartoonists. And here yeah, I am. Yeah, well. Good, good. It's coming back in style. I'm telling you, this whole enforced positivity thing can't last. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're ready for the curve. You're like ready for the doom train to come in. Yeah, we'll be there with open arms. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Liz Prince. <laughs> the scariest thing I can think of is something that you think is a scarecrow, but it's <laughs> actually a dead human body. That's actually the scariest thing you can think of. Yeah, what is the scariest thing that you can think of as you're zipping and unzipping? Uh, and rattling a bunch of stuff around for this recording. She's zipping and unzipping her pants and looking at me. <laughs> That's the scariest thing I can think of. Um, I don't know. I don't have much of an imagination for what the scariest thing I could think of is. Can you think of something scarier than what you thought was a scarecrow, but it's actually a dead human body? (laughs) No, that's the scariest thing that's ever existed. I think the surprise element is part of it. I think that it would be scarier if you, like, came in, like, say you came into this house and you walked upstairs and there was something that you thought was a scarecrow but was actually a dead body, but not outside in the world. What, did you ever hear that thing that, you know, it was like, there was a psycho killer loose, blah, 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 and then this girl was scared and then she went to bed and her dog was licking her hand (laughs) under the bed and then she woke up. And her dog was actually dead. And on the mirror it said, humans can lick hands too. I've never heard that one. Because <laughs> the killer was in her house under her bed licking her hand. I have never heard that one before. But that is pretty gross. Pretty wildly gross. I feel like I feel like a human licking your hand would probably feel pretty different than a dog licking your hand. Hold on, let's try it. Okay. We're going to have to try this out. Okay, so this is what it feels like when Kanye licks my hand, and now you lick my hand. <laughs> Did it feel the same? 
Yes, Ponyo, just sit right on my sketchbook. My tongue is wide and flat and curled like Ponyo's. <laughs> Very long. It's an urban myth that humans can lick hands to story. Not my tongue, that's a verified fact. <laughs> I've, see, I've seen your tongue lick human hands. <laughs> like at a From comics. like very far away. At a comics show. Someone's like, will you sign this? And I'm like, I'm so excited. And I take the book from them. And I just... <laughs> Somebody recently showed me their tongue was outrageous. It's like outrageously wide. Like I wondered how it fit in their mouth. <laughs> this is the beginning of your new porn podcast. This is like penthouse letters, but for very bland, like boring people. I just saw that someone's tongue was very wide. I wondered how it could fit in their mouth. The end. <laughs> Things are getting kind of risque over here. <laughs> Things are getting risque here in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, Ponyo's got her head in your lap now. Well, I just, I was just talking to Ariel Shrag on the podcast about what, looking at people on Instagram who I think are cute, but then not wanting to like a picture. Because I'm not wanting to out myself as somebody who's lurking on their Instagram. This is how tame the podcast is. Yeah, and then once I saw someone's tongue was <laughs> exceptionally wide. Wait, did you see that on Instagram? No, it was in uh, person. Because if you saw it on Instagram, <laughs> I would want you to show me. <laughs> I'll draw it for you. Okay. That's just as good. All right, now we're going to have silent work time. But we're going to record it, right? We're going to record it and see how silent we are. All right, if you think of anything scarier, let me know. Scarier than, a, than something you thought was a scarecrow that turns out to be a dead human body.